And what is the job of a CEO or a founder? Like your only job, your most important thing is make good decisions, right? You don't have to work hard. You don't have to work long hours. You just have to make good decisions, hopefully great decisions. Welcome to the I Make a Living podcast, brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. I'm your host, Demona Hoffman, and I'm one of you, a human. Yes, you heard that right. I'm an entrepreneur, but first and foremost, I'm a human. And when you treat yourself with humanity and respect, you create healthier business practices for those around you. At this stage in the election cycle, we could all use a little bit of humanity right now. But today, we're learning from an entrepreneur whose humanitarian approach to entrepreneurship actually revolutionized the world of SEO. My guest is Rand Fishkin, a startup veteran, co-founder of SparkToro, and author of the book Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. Here's Rand on why we should all consider his approach to making a living. I am an entrepreneur and, and the founder of a tiny very weirdly funded and structured software company called SparkToro. Wait, weirdly? You said weirdly funded? <laughs> weirdly funded. I think that's the I think that's the right term. I mean, I hope it's a funding model other people will consider in the future. But for now, I think we're we're one of the weirdest funded uh, software tech startup companies around. Tell us what makes it so weird. For your listeners, right, who might not be familiar with with startup tech funding world. Most of the time, unfortunately, in my opinion, uh, most of these startups are funded by venture capital or angel investors with, with the idea that eventually, hopefully, you'll raise venture capital. And SparkToro is intentionally sort of giving a middle finger to that whole model <laughs> um, and saying that we don't want to be forced to have to grow fast. We would like to grow at whatever pace is organic and survivable and sustainable and profitable. More than half of our investors have never invested in anything else. We are wow. their first and only investment. They basically put money into this company because they wanted to see the product exist, almost like a private Kickstarter or Indiegogo or that kind of thing. And we have, before we can pay ourselves any more than the average Seattle software engineer salary, we have to pay back the investment that we've taken out of the profits of the business. So everybody gets their money back before we can make more than sort of an average, which is not a low number. I think it's about $125,000 a year, but it is lower than what either of us could make on the open market or in a venture-backed company or that kind of thing. This podcast features a wide range of opinions on how to run your business. I love it when we get a controversial stance like this from one of our guests. Rand has made a career of going against the grain and doing things his own way, but that doesn't mean that his ideas are unorthodox. Actually, I found them to be refreshingly straightforward. But we, right, like as entrepreneurs, we are going to try to basically spend all the money that we have, spend all the energy that we have, pour our life and our days into it, ignore our families and friends and all the shows we really should be binge watching in, in order to like get this rapid growth rate. Why? Why is that? And it's essentially so that we can fit into the investor's preconceived model of how they think we're supposed to go as opposed to what if instead 
right? The, the other alternative is we operate like a restaurant would or any normal small business, which is, could we make more money than we spend? <laughs> is, that a, is that an insane idea? In startup world, it is an insane idea. Almost no one tries to do it. And so when you ask me, like, how do you make a living? I make a living by trying to have my company make more money than it spends, which <laughs> for everyone else is totally normal, right? And for tech startups, it is the exception. Well, you're not only doing that for yourself, you're also doing it for other people with your business and helping entrepreneurs at all levels to grow their business and make more money than they're spending. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about your journey in the tech world and in the SEO world that led you up to this point of beginning SparkToro. I dropped out of college in 2001 and started working with my mom, Jillian. I think I think mom and son founder team is the, the most unusual of all the venture-backed startup uh, <laughs> I, I would bet on that for yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> Very unusual. Uh, we basically were building websites and, and doing small business marketing for like local businesses around the Seattle area and uh, struggled really badly. We went mm. deeply, deeply into debt. Um, we were not <laughs> making more money than we were spending. And that, you know, that's a big mistake as a, as a consulting business. Um, mm. And so in 2004 or five, we were close to half a million dollars in debt. Um, oh, wow. And thinking about like, well, could we declare bankruptcy? But um, yeah, the, uh, Demona, the, the tough part of that was we hadn't told my dad that we had any debt. So he's like, you're working, things are going fine. And... Then if he actually looked under the hood, he'd see that oh, yeah. things were yeah, was, headed in a very different direction. It was terrible. Oh, wow. This is like a soap opera, Rand. Go on. <laughs> and then my dead grandmother no, um, <laughs> came back from... No, she, so um, literal uh, gold chain wearing debt collector coming to first the office and then finding me at my girlfriend's apartment later... <laughs> Um, wow. Yeah. They're so relentless. just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sketchy stuff, sketchy stuff. The good thing that came out of that was this blog called SEO Moz that started as a blog about search engine optimization and helping people learn about that and helping me learn about it. Cause one of the best ways I found to learn is to teach other people. That's proven actually that that is one of the best ways to learn. You retain more information that you teach others. So you must be at the top of your game, sir. I, <laughs> I mean, so the weird part was right it, back in those early days, not a lot of folks were trying to educate other people about SEO because if you knew SEO and you could do a good job with it, it was kind of the secret sauce behind how you attracted clients and uh, retained them, right? It was, well, without my knowledge, you wouldn't be able to rank in, at the time, all the different search engines. Now it's mostly just Google. But SEO Moz became this huge website for people in the SEO field, one of the most popular sites. I think it still is today. And then it, it turned into a software business, Moz. And I became the CEO. We raised venture capital. Uh, I raised over the course of a couple of rounds, $30 million in venture, uh, grew the business to around $50 million a year in recurring revenue, tens of thousands of customers and spoke at conferences all over, uh, all that kind of stuff. And why would you leave that? Why would you leave that behind? Um, well, it, it was a interesting and, and maybe sad story, but probably something a lot of folks can relate to. I, in 2012 and 13, I've always been a bit of a neurotic person and had some anxiety, but I, I got full-blown high-scale depression. Um, 
it, it took a few years to get out of that. But I, mm. at the end of that year, I kind of decided with my board of directors that I should step down as CEO and uh, promote my longtime chief operating officer to the CEO role. We did that in 2014. I stayed with the business another four years, but it was, yeah, a very painful and challenging mm. period. I, I, you know, I had a lot of conflict with leadership thereafter. That was really tough, but it did lead to this waking up from the sleep of all these other expectations and structures that I really no longer believe in, mm -hmm. right? I don't believe that venture capital is the right way or best way for most companies. I don't think building a big business is something I care about. I, I don't even think it's a good thing for the world generally, right? Like hmm. the more I learn about macroeconomics, even microeconomics, right? The more you see that markets do really well, capitalism works really well for income inequality and, and diversity, equity, inclusion, and communities and the world around us if businesses remain competitive and there's lots of them in a sector. Mm -hmm. When you get a few dominant entities in a sector, you start to see massive inequality, tons of money being funneled from those companies into politics and lobbying so that they can maintain their monopoly. And we can, we can all feel the effects of that over the last, you know, 50 years in the U.S., right? For sure. Yeah. Well, I want to talk to you more about SEO in a minute, sure. but I don't want to gloss over the story that you just told because I think that it's a feeling that a lot of entrepreneurs have in feeling that pressure and the anxiety and the pressures of being an entrepreneur are immense. They can be, but they don't have to be, right? They don't have to be. So what I would love for you to share with our listeners, if you can look back, Rand, on that experience and identify what some of the things were that pushed you into the depression or some of the signs that you were heading into the depression that were not visible to you then, but now mm. if you could identify them and share them, yeah. it might help some of our listeners to know. Cause I think sometimes people are depressed and they don't even know it. Like I came from a corporate media job and it was just like rat race. Like you're talking about binge watching shows earlier, <laughs> like the number of hours that the TV executives and producers are putting in at all hours so that people can binge watch. It really pushes a lot of people in media into depression. And I think in the world of tech and in entrepreneurship in general, there is that same sort of pressure that we put on ourselves. Yeah. Can you identify any of those moments? I think there's a lot of it that comes from a feeling of making a commitment to yourself and to other people around you, right? So mm. I felt like I had made a commitment to my mom and by extension, my family, right? That this company was going to be very successful and would help create sort of some generational wealth that they wouldn't have to worry about and stress about money. And, you know, my parents' retirement, my grandparents getting up into a care facility, those kinds of things, right? I definitely felt the pressure from having committed to my investors, like, hey, you're going to put tens of millions of dollars from your LPs, your, your partners into this fund, right? And into this company that I'm building. And I promise that we will make 10 to 100 times your money back in the next seven to 10 years, right? And as that trajectory looked like it wasn't going that way anymore, right? Not that we weren't growing, we just weren't growing fast enough. You know, it all started to come crashing down. The same is true for employees. Like all these people join your team, they take 
generally speaking, not as much salary as they could make at a big company. And they take equity in the form of stock options, which only become worth anything if the company has a very successful growth ramp. So just every part of the structure, right? Everything that you're incentivized to do is massive, rapid, high-risk growth or die trying. Mm. And so I think I got totally caught up in that. I was trying to outrun it by pouring every thing I had into work. And that is not a good idea. That doesn't make you better at doing your job. It doesn't make your work quality or output better. Mm -mm. All it really does is it burns you out in a very literal sense. Like it exhausts your energy and makes it so that your decision-making is more and more impaired. Mm. And what is the job of a CEO or a founder? Like your only job, your most important thing is make good decisions. Right. 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 You don't have to work hard. You don't have to work long hours. You just have to make good decisions, hopefully great decisions, especially when you have, you know, I had a hundred, 200 people working for me. I was making bad decisions because I wasn't sleeping and I wasn't eating well and I was not exercising. I wasn't doing any of the things that make a human body function well. Mm -hmm. And my brain was just beating the crap out of me all the time, telling me that I was on this failing route and had to work harder as a result. And it's important to also remember how much the CEO or founder sets the tone for the rest of the company. Yeah. So all the people around you are seeing you on the grind and are probably replicating the same thing, which, you know, sends the entire company into a state of dysfunction. I'm glad to hear that you've emerged out of that. Sometimes you don't know there's a problem unless you know what to look for, especially for entrepreneurs who grew up with the very American work hard, play hard attitude. We don't understand how hard we work until someone else points it out to us. If any of this resonates with you, take some of Rand's advice in order to protect yourself. The hardest part for sure was extricating myself from that situation, being able to say, just because I founded this company and was the CEO for a long time and still believe in it and I'm excited about it, just because I'm you know reasonably well-known in, in sort of the little niche of web marketing for this stuff, that doesn't mean that's the only thing I can ever be. Mm -hmm. Like I am allowed to permit myself to do something else. That It took me years, Simona. I should have left that first year. I absolutely mm. should have. I really regret that. I think I, I think I squandered a lot of time there. Um, well, hindsight's twenty twenty. But I when know, you're in it, it doesn't feel that way. And I can absolutely relate to being defined by the role that you're in. Yeah. And you feel like if I'm not the founder of Moz, who am I then? Who am I? Exactly. That's such a hard thing. But you're Rand. <laughs> You've moved on. And You've made other great things. I know. And people are more than their jobs. Like this is this thing I despise most about sort of whatever phase of American capitalism we're in right now is this idea that you are how hard you work and how much money you made and what you built, as opposed to you are a person and you are deserving of love and kindness for who you are, not what you accomplished or how hard you worked or how many hours or any of those things. Mm -hmm. And it is a broken, broken cultural idea that we have to all escape out of individually. I don't ever want to create the incentives and structures again that force or even nudge and encourage the model that I was living previously in a professional life. Yesterday, I did 
maybe an hour of work total at all. And that was the only work I did all weekend. And I spent almost the whole day making bolognese sauce. Wow. For some friends. Like that's all I did. Make pasta. How'd it turn out? It was great. It was incredible. (laughs) It was quite a commitment. It tasted almost exactly like when we had it in Bologna. So like I, it was mind altering. Actually, I kind of want to tell you this story almost a year ago. My wife and I traveled to Italy, to Bologna for some work stuff initially, and then some like travel tourism stuff. And Moz, the company that I started was in the process of a transaction, like someone was about to buy it. And, you know, I got the email from the banker, the investment banker, right? And they're like, okay, well, you and Geraldine are going to make uh, $13 million from this. 13? Like that... That's a lot of trips to Bologna. <laughs> I can tell you right now, like that is... Uh, 25 times the amount that we have in total savings and everything. Like it's, that's crazy amount of money to me. Yeah. I think for anyone, that's a huge amount of money. And the deal is about to close. And we get an email from Maz's CEO. That's like, Hey, at the last minute, the buyer pulled out. There's no deal. It just fell through like in, in the final week before they, um, close the deal. Yeah. And I, I had a very sleepless night. Wow. Like it was, it was a hard night. And then the next morning we woke up and I was really tired, but too bad. We had to be up super early because a friend had, he had bought us a cooking class, this Italian cooking class. And you go to this chef's kitchen and he like takes you to the market and you buy a bunch of ingredients and you come back and he shows you how to cook things. And this is where I learned how to cook bolognese. The the (laughs) thing that I made, spent all day doing yesterday. Honestly, it was one of the best the best days I have ever had. We just had such a great time. We enjoyed each other's company. Like it was beautiful. And Geraldine said, she was, you know, at the end of the day, she's like, so we lost the money. What could be better than this? Wow. What would $13 million do for us? Right. Like we're in love. We're in Italy. We're learning to cook. Just, <laughs> just take it, you know, it's good enough. Well, and even in that moment, it's like, you said we lost 13 million, but in a way you never had the 13 million. You never million. had it. You never had it. Right? And I've been actually studying stoicism. It's like, be in the moment. Do not try to control the things you cannot control. It's all of that. I think that does send us into depression and anxiety and worry because we are so focused on where we're going or where we've been that we miss the bolognese. We, yes, yes. You created a ritual for yourself that probably reignited that passion for the food and that moment that you shared with your wife. And you always have that. I know you're loving Rand's stories as much as I am, but you might also be thinking, Damona, you promised me we'd talk about SEO. We got you. Here are some SEO best practices to get you to your first 13 million. What do you think is the biggest myth about SEO? There are many, but I think one of the biggest ones that persists to this day is this idea that you're going to make a one-time investment in SEO and then your SEO will be done. Like, oh, we have a website, I have some content, I have whatever. I want to SEO it and then I will be done with my SEOing. Ah. And that is not how it works at all. 
right? It is a, it's a long, ongoing, consistent investment. That's not only because Google is always changing. It's also because the market is always changing. The, the demand for what people are searching for and what they want from what they're searching for is constantly shifting. If this year has taught us anything, it's that in a second, everything about what your audience is thinking and doing and why they're doing it and what they need from you can shift. And if you are not keeping up with those demands, small and big, you will lose out to someone who is. Absolutely. And you also have to constantly be making new content, right? Yeah. Moz's blog that you know, I built over many years and that the, the team continued to build after I left, that was a huge traffic driver of millions and millions of visits every month. But the things that people were looking for started to shift over time. The things that used to drive traffic no longer did. Many competitors came in, saw what Moz had built, built their own versions of it. Some of them did an even better job than Moz had initially. They were able to take the traffic, right? Google cares a lot about not just who's achieved ranking signals in the past, right? Links and mentions and brand and clicks and all those kinds of things, but also is someone new getting more of those more quickly, mm, mm-hmm. right? So you could be losing out to someone who, you know, you might look and say, oh, but they don't have nearly as many, whatever it is, links, mentions, clicks, search volume for their brand, you, you name the metric. They don't have those things. Why are they outranking me? And the answer is, well, they've overtaken you. The, the acceleration rate of their growth of those metrics is faster than yours. And so Google is essentially saying, hey, this looks more relevant to us right now. What are some tips? I'll admit, I know a fair amount about SEO. (laughs) I don't do all that much with it. I'm sure a lot of people are listening or like, I can relate to that. I think the reason I haven't done that much with it, Rand, is because it feels overwhelming. It does. Right. And it's like, well, I could do this and I could do that. And I have to put this out. And then, and oh, by the way, I'm also running my business. I don't have time for all that. So obviously we'll be talking about SparkToro in a minute and how people can understand their audience and learn about working with your team and the tools that you have. But if we were just going to say, improve our SEO, what are like one or two things that you would say, focus on this over that? Yeah. So I think uh, one of the first things I would recommend is figure out who your audience is, right? The people that can turn into potential customers for you. Who are they? What are they searching for? What do they want? How do they want it? Uh, What are they trying to solve? And then what can you do uniquely better than anyone else? right? So not just your product, but but your content, right? What can you do content-wise? What can you create that no one else can create or create as well or create in that way? Mm. So that might be, oh, lots of people have an article about this topic, but not many of them have a YouTube video. We can do that. We can make that video far more compelling and interesting and useful than anybody else. Or Maybe there's a video and an article, but no one's done a large-scale survey of the data. Let's go into the industry and like get that data with a survey that nobody else has assembled. We'll do it every year. So now each year we come out with this report again and again and again, whatever it is. Like you can do this a hundred ways. We'll interview the hundred most influential people in this field. We'll aggregate their answers. Whatever you can do that is useful, unique, and valuable to that audience, that's a great way to get them aware of your brand. 
A lot of times I've heard, figure out what's ranking already, like what keywords are ranking, long tail keywords, article titles, YouTube videos, we can even incorporate that. And then just like modify it a little bit, put your own spin on it. It's like you're saying basically go into an area where nobody else is playing that still serves the audience. A lot of what I've heard, not necessarily what I do, but what I've heard is basically just kind of do what other people are doing and catch a little bit of their tailwind. I think that strategy was very popular maybe a decade ago, and it kind of worked, right? It worked because, well, for three reasons. One, because Google was not good at all at putting together the intent behind search terms. So every little variation on the word or phrase that was typed into the search bar produced very different results, right? So if, you know, if you're trying to rank for, you know, the best men's haircuts 2020, not that anyone cares what anyone's hair looks like anymore. Um, Hey, we have Zoom meetings. Right. Like we can just apply, this hair isn't even real. I just put this on Zoom. uh, (laughs) Um, Your hair filter. (laughs) Yeah, the hair filter. Uh, But like we can see that Google today, as opposed to 10 years ago, will take a few pieces of content that are you know, very, very impressive that solve the searcher's query well, that have a great user experience, that have a good brand, that are on a domain that's earned authority over time, all those kinds of rank signals. And they will make those pieces of content rank for hundreds, even thousands of search queries that mean almost exactly the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. So best men's haircuts, best hairstyles for men, best men's hair 2020, Blah, blah, right? And they all sort of have the same intent behind them. And so Google ranks that same stuff. The the strategy you're describing sort of worked well in an era when Google could not do that and different pieces could rank for every little variant. Mm -hmm. And so there was just tons of traffic opportunities that today are much harder to get unless you are those few winners. I'm telling you, people are out here doing it, Rand. Uh, oh, they <laughs> they're are. still doing it. <laughs> oh, they absolutely are. And, and unfortunately, right, for a lot of them, they're making those investments and seeing low to middling ROI and thinking that's the best that they can do. And unfortunately, I think this is why a lot of the times, whether they're hiring agencies or using an in-house team or doing it themselves, many, many companies get disillusioned with SEO really fast mm-hmm. because it feels like it is sort of spinning your wheels and can you prove that the investment really worked versus, frankly, Google does this intentionally. Google ads, right? Google ads, they'll show you every click you got and all the words that send you traffic and they'll show you exactly what the person did on there. So let's talk about the next evolution then because the SEO is really just one piece of a larger pie, it seems, that you are able to help people with at SparkToro. So SparkToro, you do market research and audience intelligence, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So trying to help people understand their audiences or potential customers better. Tell me about some of the tools that one could use or that you offer that helps people do that. Because I'm, in fact, I'm just going through this right now with my marketing team and really, really drilling down on who is my audience? How do I serve them, deliver something to them that they want and need? What Casey and I, my my co-founder and I saw with SparkToro was early on in our journey, we 
sort of observed that lots and lots of marketers and entrepreneurs and people who are building their companies needed ways to reach their customers and potential customers that wasn't just throw money at Google and Facebook. If companies could figure out, oh, my audience listens to this podcast, they subscribe to these YouTube channels, they uh, follow these social accounts, they are uh, on these platforms, they're visiting these websites, then you can go and do all sorts of creative, interesting marketing in those places and earn their attention. Like buying a billboard on the exact right road in 1955, right? Like this is, uh, you are getting in front of the right audience at the right time in the right places. Search is fine. Like search is one good angle for doing this. And there are lots of people searching, but there are far, far more people who are passively browsing the web, right? For every search that happens, we're visiting a dozen, two, two dozen web pages, right? On all across the internet and scrolling through tons of feeds and all those kinds of things. And so we saw some really creative agencies and and companies um, essentially take a list of their customers, get all their email addresses, plug those email addresses into a service like Clearbit or Full Contact so they could get all their social URLs, right? So like, oh, here's the Instagram and Twitter and Facebook handles, LinkedIn handles of all my customers. And then they would go have an engineer crawl all those social accounts to see everything they followed, shared, talked about, linked to, commented on. You can only get the public data, but there's still plenty of it. And then they take that data and be like, aha, now we know everything about our customers, Uh right? We know they shared this website, which has a podcast and 12 of our 120 customers shared it. That's 10%. If we get on that podcast, we'll reach a lot more people like our customers. Mm. Let's do that. Let's go sponsor that podcast, right? That's exactly what we tried to replicate. We were basically like, we should just build that for the whole internet. (laughs) Right. But I know there's some people listening. I believe in serving people what they want and need. And if you have a good product, being able to reach people in many different ways in different platforms that may not already know about your product or service or may not naturally find you through search, right? Right. But there's some people that are listening that are like, Rand, what you just described is like super creepy, <laughs> right? I think it conceivably could be, right? So first off, you are in luck because laws in Europe and California are, are helping to protect you, right? So SparkToro, in order to comply with those laws, doesn't collect any personally identifiable information. And I'm just, just for the record, I don't think, I don't think it's creepy. I believe it's serving your audience at a higher level, but some people think so. <laughs> When I look at what Cambridge Analytica or the Parscale Managed Trump campaign has done with data collection at the individual voter level, in particular, right, like uh, I'm sure, Demona, you saw the um, intentional running of ads on Facebook to suppress Black voter turnout in 2016, right? Like that's something... Don't you know I saw that? (laughs) I mean... Right? And and, In multiple ways, I saw that. (laughs) That is both infuriating and anti-democratic and and morally repugnant, but it is an abuse of collectible information. So when SparkToro collects data, it does not collect demographic information like age or race or, or religion or gender or sexuality. Those things we toss out. We also don't keep names or addresses. The only thing that happens when you use SparkToro's database is you say, I want to know what architects in Los Angeles follow. 
Mm-hmm. And then we have these anonymized profiles and we say, oh, well, we have 744 profiles from public websites that you could visit as a user, right? All their data is public, right? They have a public Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it is. You can go visit those things. And we're just aggregating that publicly available data minus the personally identifiable information to say of 744 profiles that included the word architect and were located in Los Angeles, uh, 11.5% shared this web or, you know, engaged with this website, followed this social account, listened to this podcast, that kind of thing. And it's worth mentioning also, like you, you brought up Cambridge Analytica, but beyond Cambridge Analytica, all of these big brands that you talked about at the beginning that are gobbling up market share, they are all doing that on an e- even greater scale and a less ethical way. And so for all the little guys listening, all of the entrepreneurs, the fact that they have access to those kind of trends and that sort of audience analysis is really, really important to giving the little guys an opportunity to break into these markets and to find the people that need that. That is that is exactly the passion that I have. Like, uh, you know, obviously there are lots of different company ideas that Casey and I had that we could have pursued. And the reason that this one excited me more than any other is because I wanted to do two things. Like one, help marketers and entrepreneurs and people building companies understand where they could reach their audiences that wasn't just Facebook and Google. Because I think that the, the duopoly dominance of marketing is bad for all of us and it's bad for the world, doesn't create a competitive advantage for us. And second, I wanted some of those marketing dollars and efforts to flow to all of these small, wonderful niche publications and podcasters and video channels, right? And creators who are building audiences but not getting rewarded for it because they they have to pay a huge portion of their advertising revenue if they even do it to Google and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Let's make that connection directly. Like we don't manage that connection. You know, we just show the data, right? We're just like, here's the data. Here's where you can go do your marketing. My hope is that at a small scale, at a big scale, whatever scale we can, we are helping to take dollars that would have been thrown at Google and Facebook that are instead going to a podcaster who's built a great audience, a YouTube channel builder who's built a great audience, a news publication in a local area, a magazine in a specific industry that's built a great audience. Those are the places that I think I want to support. Yeah. And you'll get more bang for your buck too. Yeah. Right. And marketers <laughs> get more bang for their buck. Like it's, yeah. it's such a win-win. It's, the missing piece is I don't know where my audience pays attention. So I can't go there today and engage. So I have to throw money at the big ad targeting firms who've collected that data and then basically make it opaque. Don't show me where I could go do that direct so that they can manage the relationship. I love all of this. So for the people that this is all new to, they can dabble, they can run some free searches and experience yeah. what you have, right? At sparktoro.com. Yeah. Yeah. We, we wanted it to be very available to like individual entrepreneurs and small businesses and any agencies and consultants. So it's free to run like 10 searches on there and it'll show you a bunch of data. So if you know that your audience uses particular words in their profile, like they, they have a job title or something, or they talk about something online or they follow a particular account or they use a hashtag, you can go find that audience on there. 
I love it. I love it. I hope everyone will check out Spark Toro. I know I'm going to be getting my hashtags and keywords in there. Yeah, yeah. Give it a spin. I'd love to hear what you think. So thank you so much for sharing all of your insights and your personal stories and your tips. This has been such an amazing conversation, Rand. I really appreciate you being here. Oh, Demona, thank you so much. And um, yeah, thank you in particular for that trigger reminder that that Bolognese is my happy place. I'm gonna I am gonna keep that in mind. There that's go. uh, that's gonna bring me that's so much. That's your meditation. Joy. That's your meditation. Oh, before we go, there's one question that we like to always ask, and that is, what is the last piece of advice that you either gave or received? Ooh. Other than all of the wisdom that was shared on this show. Gosh, you know, I was talking to a couple of entrepreneurs just over like a Google Meet chat the other day. I think it was Friday, in fact. And they were they were asking me about, you know, how they might build their business. And one of the pieces of advice that I gave them was just to try and intentionally tune out all of the cultural noise around startup world and building a company and instead think about what they wanted for themselves and their lives short and long term and why they were pursuing the path they were building. I, I think when you question those things, right, when you stop being influenced by exterior forces and you look inside yourself and say, oh, this isn't something I want to build. I am doing this because I think I'm supposed to, because, you know, especially when you're young, it's because your parents told you that was the right way to do things or because your friends pressured you into thinking that was the way. Sometimes those things match with who you want to be and what you want to do with your future. And a lot of times they don't. And if you can get to a point where you can question that, you can build a really happy life. What's your meditation? Mine is doing cartwheels and trampolining in my backyard. I guarantee you that there are at least six things on your list that can be put off a day or two. Relax. Make your bolognese. Do a couple cartwheels. Here are some more takeaways from Rand. We are all human. Just like you're always evolving, your audience is made up of real people who develop interests over time. You can't just set it and forget your SEO. Keep it simple, stupid. Okay, I'm not calling you stupid, but you know the phrase. Businesses should be about making more money than they spend. It doesn't have to be as hard as we make it. Sometimes it's about you. As entrepreneurs, we feel the immense pressure because people rely on us, but you need to take care of yourself in order to take care of them. Corporate responsibility. You and your company have a responsibility to treat human beings like human beings. What do you even need $13 million for? Start with making a comfortable living and do what makes you happy. If you're looking for a fresh approach to SEO, definitely check out Spark Toro and Rand's book, Lost and Founder, A Painfully Honest Field Guide to the Startup World. This podcast was brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. We have so many tools to help you cut down on the time you spent dealing with accounting and finances and let you get back to being a fully functioning human being ASAP. So check out our exclusive offer that's just for our podcast listeners. It's at freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L. That's freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L, short for I Make a Living. 
Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. Our associate producer is Leo Shell Villanueva. Our producer and director is Paco Erzmendi. And I'm your host and producer, Demona Hoffman. Let's connect. I'm on all of the socials at Demona Hoffman. Or you can find out what I do in my business at DemonaHoffman.com. And get in touch with your humanity because it's your business. See you next week.